Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up-to-date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at classiccity.org. Zephaniah, we've been doing a uh, series of messages uh, through a section of the Bible called the Minor Prophets. It's the last 12 books in the Old Testament. And they're not minor because they are not important. They're just called minor because they're short. They're brief. Uh, they're, they're usually, uh, most of them are three chapters long or less. Uh, and they're just brief, brief messages uh, that we have uh, from the Lord to you know, inspire our life and to, to talk to us and touch us. Um, a little historical background about the minor prophets. The, uh, the, the time frame they cover was from, it began in 1050. When Israel began to have a monarchy, when they began to have a king, that's when these uh, prophets began to speak. Uh, if you look 120 years later in the year 930, uh, the, it, the nation of Israel divided. There was a fracture there. Uh, it was made up of 12 tribes. You might think of it as 12 states. And 10 of the states, 10 of the tribes went to the north and two that were in the south divided from them. Uh, the northern tribe became, the northern set of 10 tribes retained the name Israel. The southern tribes became the, the name of the tribe Judah. The city of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, was actually in Judah there. And so after that, in 722, the Assyrians came and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in five, really in 597, and then again in 586, the Babylonians did sort of a prolonged conquest of Judah. First they came in and conquered them and took people away. The second time they came in, they destroyed the temple and just literally destroyed the whole city. And then the other historical framework you want to think about is in 538, a Persian king named Cyrus came to power and he released all the uh, Jews to go back to their homeland and rebuild their country. That was in 538. And so there's some prophecies that deal with that time frame and those circumstances. And that goes till 444 BC. So you have kind of a 600 year range where the prophets are speaking to Israel. And what's really cool about this is you get different context. You get different situations and different um, settings and different things you may experience in your life that this this can speak to you a little bit more directly. So that's, that's where we're at. So we're looking today at the book of Zephaniah. It's in the Old Testament. Hope you're there. And let me give you a little background of Zephaniah. Zephaniah spoke to Israel during the reign of a king named Josiah. Now, when Josiah first came to power, he was an eight-year-old boy. And he really was just, you know, obviously at eight years old, very inconsequential until much later in time. But Josiah actually brought about a lot of reforms and a lot of revivals. He had about a 13-year stretch where he really straightened up the country a lot. So what probably is true is that this guy, Zephaniah, and we're going to see from the, the, what he says, uh, spoke before Josiah began his reforms. And he spoke about the sin and what was going on in Israel. His name is very interesting. The word Zephaniah, anybody here know anybody named Zephaniah? You, you just, it's a weird name. It's an odd name. It's not a name. Some Bible names we name our kids. This one we don't. But Zephaniah literally means Yahweh is hidden. Yahweh, God, is hidden. That's what his name means. 
And he's kind of interesting among the prophets in that when we open up and we read about his, uh, open the first verse of, of, of chapter 1 of Zephaniah, we read his genealogy and we find out that he, four generations, his great-great-grandfather was a king of Israel, a great king named Hezekiah. So this is kind of unusual and kind of cool about him. So this is Zephaniah. Remember, God is hidden. And um, I want to read chapter 1. And, and if, if, if anybody, I don't know if you've read Zephaniah. Zephaniah, of all the books that are hellfire and brimstone, this is the king of them. It really is. It's just, it is the most, uh, it, it, is, it is, we're going to see God is furious, he is ferocious, and he is in a, in a place of wrath and displeasure. And I want to read some of this to you and just kind of take it through the book um, a little bit here. Look at chapter 1, and let's read verse 3, four, uh, three and couple, I guess 2, 3, and 4 together. Verse 1, he says, I will sweep away everything. From the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the skies, the fish in the sea, and the idols that cause the world to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And he goes on in verse 4, he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and all those who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolaters. So you can see this is how he comes out. God is coming out swinging in this book. I'm going to destroy everything. I'm going to sweep away everything. And if you go on here and you keep reading through here, um, he continues to have this kind of a, of a disposition throughout the whole thing. Uh, verse 6, he talks about those they don't follow the Lord. They don't seek the Lord. They don't inquire of him. In verse 8, he says this, I will punish the officials and the king's sons. In verse 9, on that day, I will punish. And then in verse 12, he says this, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish those who are complacent. Like This is, this is how God is depicting himself, as somebody going around a place at night with a lamp, with a lantern, looking for where the evil may be hiding so he can punish them. He can give them what they deserve. Now, that is kind of an odd, challenging depiction of God. But, but think about this. There is a day, and I think sometimes, you know, as a preacher, you almost want to joke about something like that because it is such a strong statement, but... I don't think it's helpful if we would protect ourselves from God. If God's really like this, I think it helps to really embrace it and, and, and be honest and be authentic about it. And here's the truth. God is a being committed to truth. And, and the fact is, one day, every one of us will stand before a being to give an account for everything we've done. I mean, that is an awesome moment to think about everything we've done a God that knows you better than you know yourself and, and that can be very uncomfortable because I don't know if you're like me but let me tell you what's true of me if you knew me like I knew me if you knew about me what I know about me 
I could not look you in the face. I couldn't do it. In fact, if I knew you were in the same city as me, I would move to a different, I would just move to a different state. Alabama wouldn't seem, seem so bad after all. You know, it just... And the truth is, if I knew you like you knew you, I knew about you what you know about you, you couldn't look me in the face either. And you would move to a different state. Here's the thing. We are going to stand before a being that knows those things. And it's a very, very sobering thought. And Zephaniah is, is bringing this to light. And he continues on in verse 12 and verse 14. He talks about the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom. In verse 18, he says, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them. On that day of the Lord's wrath, in the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed. He will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. That is a sobering description of God. And then he goes on in chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation. Before the decree takes effect and the day passes away, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes on you. Verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, and all... And, do what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered from the Lord's anger. And we, we see this picture of God, you know, brooding and moving in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we see this, this hopeful thing where he says, you know what? If you will seek the Lord, you'll seek to live in humility. You'll seek righteousness. It will be like a shelter. It will actually protect you in that day. And then he, he goes on here. And if you read the rest of chapter 2, you'd see that he basically begins to pronounce judgment on different nations, pagan nations that were in the area. So he's no longer talking about Israel. He goes through that. And then he, we come to chapter 3. And again, he is wrapping up in the first eight verses his uh, judgment upon Judah, upon his people. And then in verse 8, let me read you this last verse. He says this, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nation, to gather the kingdoms, to pour out my wrath on them, all of my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Now, the book of Nahum is 53 verses long. That's the 41st verse. And it is just wrath, destruction, judgment, ferociousness, the, the, the sin and the disgust God has toward the people and toward what they're doing. But then something happens in verse 9, it changes. And what God talks about, he talks about that 
amidst this fallen, backslidden nation, Israel, there is a remnant. There are people who actually stayed faithful. And he says, I want you. I'm going to take you. And then he goes on and he talks about from all the nations on the earth, every nation, there's going to be people that are going to really want to serve God. They're going to want to serve him. They're going to love him. They're going to be in a relationship with him. And he says, I'm going to take them too. And he begins to talk about this. So I want to skip down and I want to highlight what we went through in our, in our inspiration, the passage here. Um, and let me start with verse 14. And let's, let's just look at this. Sing, daughter of Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear harm. You know, it's just this powerful thing God's saying to him. He goes from being, hey, I'm against you. I'm coming at you. To where he says in this thing, look, shout aloud. Shout aloud. Be glad. Rejoice. With all your heart, because God has taken away your punishment, he's turned back your enemies, and God the King is with you. I'm with you. There's just been a powerful reversal here. Verse 16, on that day, they will say in Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. You know, one of my favorite words in the English language is the word great. I say it all the time. I love the word great. The mission statement of our church is honoring the what? Greatness. Yeah, we we love the word great here. We love the word great. And I, I love how he says this. The Lord will take what kind of delight? Great delight in you. Can you imagine that being true? Could you imagine what it would be like for God to take great delight in you, to celebrate you? This is what he's talking about here. This is really, really powerful. And he goes on here, and he says in um, the rest of verse 17, In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Like, can you imagine this? Could you imagine God singing songs about you? Being so happy with you, being so pleased with you, being so in love with you and excited about you that he sings songs about you? Wouldn't that be incredible? Yes, no, I mean, okay, okay, okay. just want to make sure here, okay, singing. Verse 18, I will remove from you uh, all that mourn. Um, verse 19, at that time I will deal with all who oppress you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor. You know, one of the most amazing, amazing things I've ever seen in my life was on an episode of Oprah. I don't watch Oprah, but somebody sent me a video of it. I want to make that very clear. I'm too busy to watch Oprah, thank God. But, but, I, but I did get a clip of Oprah show. And 
she introduced a guy. Um, his name was Nick Wojcicz. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. This guy, Nick Vojcic, she's in this big room, Dr. Phil and her on the stage. They introduce Nick Vojcic, and out comes a human being, I kid you not. He was this tall. He had no legs and no arms, and he was just waddling up on the stage. And I was sitting there going, wow. I mean, this is, a... and then I thought, well, yeah, you know, cool. Wow. And he got up on stage. And he started speaking, and he told his story. He was born this way, literally born with no legs and no arms. And how he thought of suicide, how he was miserable, how he was hopeless as a teen, and all the stuff he was going through. And then as a teenager, he committed his life to Christ. He gave his life to Jesus. And it radically changed him. He talked about how he went from no longer seeing himself as a defeated person, as a broken person, but he saw himself as a conqueror in Christ, and he was just preaching the gospel. I'd never seen anything like it. And then later on in the interview, he was talking about his Christian faith, and he said, you know what? If somebody can look at me and see Christ in such a way that they actually become jealous of a human being with no arms and no legs, that's, that's my goal. Because you see in me something you want that's even more precious than your arms and your legs. And this is what this, this is so powerful to me. God says, I want the lame. I want the exiles. I want the broken. This is what God's like. I want to rebuild this thing. I want to do it with broken lives. I don't want to do it with broken people. Listen, God does not want what is pretty about you and me. He doesn't want what is great about us. God wants us not for what we are. He wants us for what we aren't. He does not want you for what you have. He wants you for what you lack. He wants what's broken about you, what is messed up about you, what is defeated about you. That's who he is. That's who he is. And he goes on here and he continues in, in, in verse 19. At that time, I will deal with all those who oppressed you. I will rescue. I will gather. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they've suffered, suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. So I want to just kind of summarize up three takeaways that are in this book that I think are really powerful. The name Zephaniah again means God is hidden. So what is hidden in this odd, quirky book where you have 41 verses of God wiping out nations and hunting down people, individual people, at night with a lamp trying to find out the guilty to a God who is now delighting over people, singing over them, wanting to, to take the broken and the defeated and build something significant out of them, build a new nation out of them. What do we take away from this? Number one thing I think that is really significant, that's really hidden about God, is his significance. 
You know, the significance of God is hidden. You know, it is not natural for a human being to honor the significance of Almighty God. Now, when you think about it, it's sensible. It should be logical and reasonable. It's just not what human beings do. Why? Because it's hidden. The significance of God is hidden. And if we're going to align ourselves with that powerful, profound reality, we've got to move toward him. It is not obvious. God's not a coercive being. He doesn't do dramatic things to to win you and I's allegiance and our loyalty. The significance of God is hidden. C.S. Lewis once said, a real famous quote, he said, Christianity, if it's not true, is not important at all. If it is true, it is the most important thing there is. What it can't be is moderately important. God's importance, his significance is hidden. It's a hidden thing. Here's the second thing that's hidden in this thing. is the salvation brought by Christ. It's hidden in this book. Now we see there is something that happened dramatically that shifted the tone. The first 41 verses to the last 12 verses. There's a dramatic shift in the tone. Something changed. Something happened. How does God go from wiping out the world to singing songs and greatly delighting in the same people? Salvation came. And we can look in this, this, pick this last part of Zephaniah, those last threes, and, and there's a word that gets repeated over and over and over again, a phrase. And the phrase is, I will, I will, I will, I will. And God says, I will come and be with you. God says, I will take away your punishment. God says, I will take away your shame. And what we have hidden in the book of Zephaniah is the gospel. It is God coming to us as one of us. And through his loving life and his sacrifice and his death on the cross, taking away your and my shame, taking away our judgment and our punishment. So literally, you and I can literally stand before a God that knows everything about us and be confident And be assured that he's not responding to our sins. He is responding to what Christ did on the cross. And instead of revolting and dismissing us, man, he's celebrating and he's singing. Oh, you found me. You saw me. You came to me. And just him being excited and rejoicing over that. God removes in Christ what is repulsive and revolting about you and I. You know, when I was a a young dad, my second born, Xander, was just a cute, cute little kid. Really, really cute. They're all cute. But, you know, he was cute, and he was really funny. He would would wake up every morning, he would just jump out of bed. 
And he would just throw on his clothes like in seconds. He would just, and you just go, wow, this is, I used to just like to get up to watch him wake up because it was just a sight, you know. I just like, God, this kid is just, he's ready to tear up the world. He just, you know, threw everything on. And then some mornings he would get up and he would come running in my bed, just run. And you'd be like, oh gosh, you know, it's Saturday morning, you know, whatever, you just want to sleep. And he would come and he would grab my face like this. Grab my face and get right like this. And he'd say, Daddy, Daddy, I want a Pop-Tart, Daddy. <laughs> Daddy, I want a Pop-Tart. I want a... He would just say it over and over, I want a Pop-Tart, Daddy, just different ways. A Pop-Tart, you know, with frosting. Daddy, a Pop-Tart. Can you get me a Pop-Tart? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you beautiful kid, I'll get you a Pop-Tart. Sure, just what, what could you do? I get up and get him a Pop-Tart. I used to love that kid. He's just a fantastic little boy. But one time, he had about a two-week period where he got a condition called halitosis. <laughs> Those of you that knew what that is just laughed. You know what happens. When you have halitosis, your, your breath smells like dead fish. And I don't mean to insult dead fish. It just is a bad, uh, bad fragrance. And so suddenly, this kid, I used to just pop tart. I'd go, yeah, let's go get a pop. I was like, oh, my God, you know, get away from me. Let's get a peppermint pop tart. You know, it's like, what do you, you know, you're just like, oh, oh, gosh, kid, yeah. You know, you just, you just, you know, and, and this is kind of a God's dilemma with a man. It's like, I love you. I like you. You're, I want to, but, but I need to remove the shame. I need to remove the dirt. And this is what is happening in Zephaniah. God says, I'm going to remove it. I'm going to take it away. I am personally going to come and do it myself. I'm going to be in your midst like a mighty warrior. Jesus Christ on the cross was God as a mighty warrior, wiping out our sins. It's a powerful, powerful message. Then the, the last message of Zephaniah that's hidden there, what's hidden is the true nature of God. What God is really like. See, God is paradoxical. He's a paradox. It's a paradox of two things that seem completely incompatible. One is what we read about in the first 41 verses of this book. God is a God of justice, judgment, and wrath. And you and I might not like that. But to be honest with you, thank God he is. Thank God there is somebody who when everything is said and done, the people that exploited, the people are going to stand before a being and, and will not believe, will have to be given account to somebody for what they did. That is something you and I should be excited about. The only problem is we got to stand before him too. But he's a being of justice. When Moses went to God and he was, had this incredible experience with this being, Yahweh, and he goes to him and he goes, show me your glory. And what he is saying is, tell me what you're like. What are you really like? Show me what you're like. You know, you can say words and you can write things, but when you see a picture, you see an image, sticks in your mind. He's saying, show me what you're like. And God said something very odd to him. 
He says, I'll show you my glory, but you're, you know, he says this phrase. He says, you know, I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord. He walked past him in, in the, the, from the back, and he says, I'm the Lord. He says, I'm merciful, I'm kind, I'm just. I forgive sins, iniquities, violations, I forgive. But then he says, but I don't leave the guilty unpunished. And I visit sins on those who commit them. And you, so you, you have this kind of paradox. Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me your peak. Give me a picture of you that is, that is ultimate you. That's what we mean by glory. When you think of glory, you know, think of the glory of a great leader like Martin Luther King. When you think of Martin Luther King, you think of his pinnacle moment. You think of the I have a dream speech, you know? And, and when Moses is saying, what is your glory? What is your pinnacle? What's your peak? And God gives him this phrase. Here's my peak. I am a punished sin and I forgive sin. That's my peak. And what's really amazing is in Jesus Christ, we see that peak come together in an incredible way. Because on the cross, God literally did both. On the cross, God bore humanity's sin. He took the judgment. He took the wrath of God for you, me, for every one of us on the cross. And in doing so, he demonstrated his love. He bore wrath. In that moment on the cross, God's love and God's wrath came together. And that picture is the most profound, powerful, beautiful picture of God there is. A human being 2,000 years ago hanging helpless on a cross. And this is the, this is what God's hidden in this book. This is what God has veiled in this powerful, powerful three-chapter, odd, sometimes even disturbing letter from Zephaniah. God's hidden. His significance is hidden. God's salvation is hidden. How he would come and remove shame and remove punishment and then delight in us. And God's nature, God's character, the paradox of God is hidden in this passage. Let's, let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this powerful book of this prophet who lived years ago, Zephaniah. We thank you for his words. We thank you they speak to us today. And God, as we stand before you, we are the broken. We are the lame. We are the exiled that come to you. And although we have blown it, we know that through Christ you celebrate those that turn and come to you. And I just pray, God, for those here that may be in that situation. They may be the lame and the broken and the exiled and the alienated. But God, they would see the salvation you offer through Christ. They see what you said you would do in this book you did. You came and you took away punishment and you took away shame so we could stand before you clean and accepted. 
And I pray for any here who've never made that commitment, that they would do that, that they'd come to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.